The weirdest question that I have been asked, uh, there's a little story that goes with this. So part of the Boston National Historical Park, there is a World War II destroyer called the USS Cass and Young. And I was standing on the quarterdeck and greeting visitors as they entered on board. And this woman came and she had two kids in tow. She went to the back of the ship or the aft of the ship and she came back and she just looked like she had panic on her face. And my coworker and I were standing there and we looked and we saw she had her kids. So we knew the kids weren't missing. And then we were like, ma'am, is everything okay? Can we help you with something? And she goes, I, I just can't find them. And we're like, calm down, ma'am. You know, what is it that you can't find? She's like the dents. And the maintenance guy was standing there, too. And Ed was like, the dents? We're looking at each other puzzled and we're like, the dents? She's like, yeah, from the cannonball. And we're like thinking about it. And we're like, oh, I think you mean USS Constitution, which was right across the pier. She's like, yeah, you know, from old Ironsides. And we're like, well, we're a World War II destroyer and USS Constitution's over there. And before we could tell her any parts of the history of the Cass and Young, she was off the boat, man. <laughs> Going across the way so she could get on Constitution. So she wanted, that, nothing, she wanted nothing to do with that ship. Yeah, it was just it was just bizarre. The dense <laughs> podcast junkies, episode forty three with Liz Covart of Benjamin Franklin's World, and it's a podcast about really the eighteenth century in American history. And Liz used Ben Franklin as a representative of the time because I think the majority of his, his life was in the 18th century. And he's such a well-known figure and it makes sense to have that as a reference point for people that are new to the podcast. They're like, oh, I know Ben Franklin. And it gives them an, an entry into the podcast and the topics of American history. I met Liz through an online group as um prone to do and being in so many and having similar friends. We run sometimes in the same circles. And I was drawn to her interview on the podcast producers, a series that I may have mentioned earlier that was created by Corey Coates and Jessica Rhodes. And it's a, it was one of those podcast series where they released all 10 episodes at once. So that's like the first season. And it really induces some serious binge listening, which is what I did when I downloaded the whole 10. Liz was on there. And uh, I just loved her take on some of the topics that were covered there. And I just really thought that I wanted just to dig deeper. And so I asked her to be on the show. And so it's interesting because it's uh, the, the time when I've had a guest on that's not in the entrepreneurial circle. And I think it's timely as well because it's something that I seriously think about uh, in terms of moving the direction of the show. I know that I've had a lot of my folks and, and on previously that were friends or people that I've met through the space and referred me to other friends. And just because of the conferences we attend, we all likely run to run in the same circle. But Liz was different in terms of, of the entrepreneurial space is not her topic. It was actually American history. And it coincides with a, a renewed interest that I've had in some of the NPR type shows that have come out. I've consistently been a fan of 99% Invisible and of Radiolab. And it's turned me on to some new shows that I've been listening to recently, shows like uh, Nocturne 
and a new one that came out today called um, I'll have to look it up on my phone but the quality of the shows just blows me away and I think one of the things that I want to do is start to reach out to some of those folks because obviously they are podcasters as well and it'll add a different flavor to podcast junkies so Looking forward to that happening and uh, really wasn't disappointed with the, the conversation I had with Liz. She just knows her subject matter so well. She's got a PhD in history and her ability to rattle off historical facts is just amazing and very impressive. And we cover a wide range of topics. The fact that she grew up in New England, the impact her parents had on her and how they used to take her to museums and, and the national parks and just her love about all topics of history, the detail in which she digs into her guests and how she does her research, how she reads the books of the authors she has on the show, her love of Game of Thrones. We tend to geek out on that for a couple of minutes. Uh, so there's a spoiler alert here <laughs> if you haven't seen it. And it was just a really relaxed and, and fun conversation. I'm glad we had it. I'm glad I got to know a little bit more about Liz Covart and you will have as well as a result of listening to this episode. So enjoy. Liz Covart, thank you for joining Podcast Junkies. Thank you for having me, Harry. I am I feel very honored to be here among my people, fellow Podcast Junkies, that is. Yeah, and it's funny for me because for fans of the show and listeners of the show, I think I started out in an area where I'm comfortable with. So I talked to a lot of folks in the entrepreneurial space. But I think lately I've been making a concerted effort to see where I can branch out. And who knows, maybe this conversation is sort of that jumping off point where we don't have to talk about lead magnets. <laughs> That's good because my knowledge of lead magnets is not very great. And if you don't know what a lead magnet is, then don't worry about it. We're not, that's about all we're going to say on that topic. So you picked a topic of history because history is your background, correct? Yes, I am an historian of early America. I have my PhD in early American history, and I just love researching and writing and talking about history. I heard you on the... Uh I forgot the show, the podcasters, the one with Corey and... The podcast producers. Podcast producers, yes. And I was on it as well. I should remember it. <laughs> and uh, you were in a couple of those segments. And I think I was. it was really interesting, some of the answers you were giving to Corey and uh, Jessica. And I said, well, I, I think this merits a, a deeper conversation about a topic that's been selected for podcasting that, you know, some people may not even think that you, you could have that as a subject for starting your own podcast. So given that you had a, a historian background, who was it that motivated you to take that initial step forward to, and to think that you could actually start a whole show based on this topic? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I came to podcasting as a podcast listener, like everybody else, I'm a podcast junkie. And I was listening to all sorts of entrepreneurial and social media podcasts because as an academic, I had no idea how I would make money. And they were all really helpful. And I looked around for history podcasts, but a lot of them were a bit basic for me and they were more lecture style than conversation. And I was like, oh, there's nothing really early American history. There's nothing conversational style. And then I'm like, wait, Maybe maybe I should start a podcast. And so like a good historian, I spent 18 months researching, you know, not every day, but I'd listen to podcasts and be like, what do I like? What don't I like? You know, what would my f format be? And yeah, Ben Franklin's world was a result. And I've been having so much fun. And there's so many people who love history and I'll never run out of topics. 
So really, 18 months into researching it? Well, not actively every day, but yes, <laughs> yes. Is, was part of that the syndrome that most beginning podcasters face, that whole effect of not feeling that you have enough to start or you're not ready to start? I think for me, I wasn't sure what kind of format I wanted. I knew I wanted conversational style, but I didn't know whether I wanted to have like a co-host um, and present history back and forth. And I spent many months thinking about what it would take to prepare that kind of episode. And I, I didn't really want to prepare lectures and notes and, and all that sort of thing. And then I realized that, you know, historians who have books are anxious to talk to you, or if they have a historic site uh, with some sort of important event, they're anxious to get word out about it. So I was like, wait, then I don't have to spend so much time coming up with content. I can yeah. just have a conversation. So. And was it hard getting guests to get on your show in the beginning? No, I had some really supportive people. The library company in Philadelphia uh, that was founded by Benjamin Franklin, they were really supportive. In fact, I asked them for one interview. They gave me three. Nice. So my first episode is really three different episodes. And Tom Foster, who had this book called Sex and the Founding Fathers, he graciously was my first interview. And that went, OK, um, I've gotten a lot better since then. But I've had a lot of support from my fellow historians. It's been really nice to have. It's been fantastic. And have your fellow historians seen what you've done? And have they been motivated by that and said, hey, maybe I should start a podcast? There are some historians with podcasts, but they tend to interview other historians about you know, how we work. I am trying to bring quality history to fellow history lovers. I don't know if you've been into a Barnes & Noble lately or your favorite independent bookstore, but I'm tired of Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck being sold as history. They write historical subject matter, but it is more akin to propaganda than it is to actual history. And I don't think there's, there's no good reason why we can't have access to good history because there's plenty of it. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because obviously they're just going to give you their interpretation <laughs> and their slant on what they think the, their history topic should be. Yeah, unfortunately, we will never know what the founding fathers would think of our present day, just as we can really never understand the world that they lived in. We can get close, but we will just never be able to understand it. And our world is just so far removed from theirs. It's almost not worth speculating on because <laughs> it's just so different. So is there a function because... Because of the technology, I mean, a lot of people think because so much time has passed since, and we get, like you said, farther and farther away from the actual events. Is that really the historian's role to make sure that all that stays preserved for future generations so that with the advent of new technology, we can share that with a broader audience? Yeah, I think in some ways, I mean, our... Our job is really to make the past relevant and to understand what happened back then so we can understand where we are today. I know we love to think that we are new and novel people. We certainly have lots of great technological innovations. But when you look at the gamut of world problems or economic problems, it's really just variations on the same theme. So we can learn a lot from history if we look at it and study it in the right way. They won't offer us exact solutions because obviously our context is different, but they can offer us suggestions. So is there someone that was pivotal in your life growing up, either a teacher or a mentor, that made you realize this, this is something that you wanted to pursue? You know, I grew up around history. I'm a New Englander, and it's hard not to love the American Revolution. We just get it in school. We're taught that Boston is the center of the universe, and all things revolve around New England. And my parents really helped feed that because we were always going on vacation, and we were never beach people. We were always museum and culture people. Nice. 
So we would fly into one area of the country and we'd see like all the museums and national parks in that area. So history was just always something I was around. And then in high school, I had a teacher, Wayne Johnson, who encouraged me to get into the archives. He had, he was an antiques dealer on the side and he had found this poster that he was looking for more historical context on. And I found the records. I was so proud of myself. They were in the New York public library and I lived in New Hampshire, but my grandparents lived on Long Island. So at Christmas break, I made my parents take me into New York city so I could go to the library and look up the, the records. And I found what I was looking for. And then an undergrad at Penn state, the late William Penn sack, He sat me in his office and he said, you know, one day you're going to go to graduate school. And I was like, and do what, Bill? And he was like, get a Ph.D. in history. And I was like, oh, you're crazy. Do you know how long a Ph.D. would take? But he oversaw my honors thesis, which was on the history of the Bunker Hill Monument. It brought me back into the archives. And I was like, you know what? I love it. It's like a treasure hunt. Every time I go in the archives, I have questions and I'm just looking for all the answers. And I just had so much fun. So then it started to make sense. You talked on, I think, on a show about attending a Boston Tea Party reenactment. I did. That was about two years ago. It's fantastic. The Old South Meeting House and the Tea Party Ships Museum in Boston offer every year. And they hold the debate in the Old South Meeting House. And they're reenactors to get the debate going. But they give you like a little card when you walk in with a political position on it. And it is so fun to watch people stand up and participate Not everybody was a patriot. There were a bunch of loyalists and you have your fellow Americans standing there talking about, well, of course we have to pay the tax on tea. If we don't, then I'll lose my livelihood. And then after the debate, it's really cool. And I mean that both literally and figuratively because it's December in Boston. But you line up outside and then you get a police escort and you start walking down to Old Griffin's Wharf where the Tea Party Ship Museum is. And you're chanting things like no taxation without representation or dump the tea. And then when you get there, I recommend you bring a seat warmer because the bleachers are metal. And again, it's December in Boston. It's very cold. But then they do the they complete the reenactment on the Tea Party ship and they actually dump real tea into into Boston Harbor. Uh, It's like outdated tea leaves from like Tetley and all these major tea brands. But it's pretty cool. That's funny. I wonder if the uh, tea makers see that as a branding opportunity. (laughs) You do get a little tea bag when you walk in with your ticket. Yeah. And so the actual Boston Tea Party was in December? Yes, December 16th, 1773. 342 chests of tea went overboard. So that just begs another question. Are you always this accurate with your (laughs) historical details? I tend to know Boston and, you know, details related to my work better than most. When I was an undergraduate, at Penn State. I spent my summers working for the National Park Service in Boston. So I gave a lot of Bunker Hill battle talks and I learned the sites on the Freedom Trail well. And then when we moved back to Boston via California and New York State, I signed up to be a docent with Boston by foot. So I give tours about Boston's role in the American Revolution. So these facts tend to be top of mind. Yeah, we we like to go to some of the national parks as well with my wife and with friends. And we recently went to the Grand Canyon. I like she's from Columbia, so I like to take her to historical American landmarks. And we also went to Death Valley. What's it's interesting when you always have the folks that work for the National Park Service and their level of dedication, because some of them are on the job two or three years. And I imagine you can rotate different assignments, but 
they never get tired in terms of their enthusiasm in, when they start talking about the, the, the park or, that they're in or, or they have to describe the, you know, some of the history that goes with that area. Yeah, you form a connection to this site. It's also a talent because you get some really weird questions. So learning how to answer those you know, seriously when you're going, what <laughs> is a talent? And I'm, I'm grateful that they gave that to me. So what's one of the weirdest questions you've been asked? The weirdest question that I have been asked, uh, there's a little story that goes with this. So part of the Boston National Historical Park, there is a World War II destroyer called the USS Cass and Young. And I was standing on the quarterdeck and greeting visitors as they entered on board. And this woman came and she had two kids in tow. She went to the back of the ship or the aft of the ship and she came back and she just looked like she had panic on her face. And my coworker and I were standing there and we looked and we saw she had her kids. So we knew the kids weren't missing. And then we were like, ma'am, is everything okay? Can we help you with something? And she goes, I, I just can't find them. And we're like, calm down, ma'am. You know, what is it that you can't find? She's like the dents. And the maintenance guy was standing there, too. And Ed was like, the dents. We're looking at each other puzzled and we're like, the dents? She's like, yeah, from the cannonball. And we're like thinking about it. And we're like, oh, I think you mean USS Constitution, which was right across the pier. She's like, yeah, you know, from old Ironsides. And we're like, well, we're a World War II destroyer and USS Constitution's over there. And before we could tell her any parts of the history of the Cass and Young, she was off the boat, man. <laughs> Going across the way so she could get on Constitution. So she wanted, that, nothing, she wanted nothing to do with that ship. Yeah, it was just it was just bizarre. The dents. <laughs> what is the history of the Cass and Young? I have to think back because it's been many years since I worked at the park. But um, it was built in the San Pedro shipyards in California. So there's a California connection for you. Yeah. And it served in the South Pacific, and it was actually hit by two kamikaze attacks and. I'll give you a rough, I think it's six sailors died total, but it may be a little bit more, a little less than that. But it served in World War II and then afterwards was renovated and refitted for service in the Cold War. So a lot of what you will see on the Cass and Young, I believe, is still Cold War era, um, but we'll interpret usually the World War II aspects because that that's what people find most interesting at this point. So with all this, like new, obviously new technology and the, and the rapid change, sometimes I like to call it the quickening because I feel like things are, technology is improving exponentially, like with every generation. And, you know, they always have that, that graph that shows the years in between the industrial revolution and the, you know, the radio and then the TV and then the internet, and they keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So what effect, if any, do you think that has on new, newer generations' interest in history or access to history or their proclivity for wanting to become a historian? Well, there's still, still children and, and young adults who want to become historians, but their number is le you know a little less. And I think that's on the profession. I don't think we have done enough to make history relevant. Um, we spend a lot of time talking to other academics about history and not doing enough outreach, which is really why I wanted to do the podcast. But I think it's also exciting. There are museums out there. The Massachusetts Historical Society is among them. They're putting up all sorts of digital exhibits and interactive exhibits. I've been to other museums where they'll have tablets that you can touch and, and pick the facts and areas that you want to know. I know that there's, you know, 
someone sent me an email. Now I can't remember. I think it's called the iBeacon, but basically it's got a proximity sensor in it. So when you walk in, it'll send you a push notification to your phone so it can tell you the painting you're looking at or the, you know, more information about the exhibit. I think it's exciting. I know virtual reality is coming. I can't wait to see the apps that are available for that. You know, we may be able to hike the Grand Canyon without all the sweat and tears uh, just from the privacy of our own home. It'll be great. Yeah, it's funny that the you mentioned hiking the Grand Canyon, and because they they have these huge warning signs like "Do not go down past a mile" or you know certain places without this much water, or they always say it's it's going to take you like twice as long to get back up as it does to get back down. And we took that advice to heart, but it's always funny to see tourists. We literally saw like a group of girls. I think with a water bottle, maybe not. And they were hiking down in flip-flops. <laughs> People do that on the Freedom Trail. The Freedom Trail is two miles long, and I do not recommend doing it in flip-flops. Put good footwear on. The other thing is, you know, you need to be aware of your surroundings, and that goes to the Grand Canyon too. But in New England, you have to bring layers because it could be really hot, it could be really cold, and it could be somewhere in the middle. So Yeah, and I think it's just fascinating, especially when you talk about the national parks and all the aspects of this country that give you sort of taste for where we came from. And, and, and I thought that was important. And one of the reasons why I took my wife to Philadelphia as well, I took her to see the Liberty Bell. And then we went to see, I think it was the oldest paved road in the United States. And just to say you walked on that, but it sort of provides some context. And she eventually a couple of years ago became actually a U.S. citizen. And so she had that aspect of, of having seen that and, and the history of the Declaration of Independence. And it's sort of things that you take for granted when you're, when you're younger, right? And you sit in history class and you're like, uh, you know, Bill of Rights. And, <laughs> and uh, I mean, there were, some good sh- there were some good shows on TV that actually helped with that. I think it was uh, Electric Company or Schoolhouse Rock, I think it was, right? Oh, Schoolhouse Rock is awesome. <laughs> yeah, so they, they help you kind of absorb some of those lessons easier. But I, I think a lot of people don't, put enough importance on the history of at least the country where they're from, right? Um, I think some places do better job than others. And obviously it, it varies depending on how you luck out with teachers. I do think that in some ways we put a lot of emphasis on dates and it should be on stories of the people and the lessons they learned and their adventures. I think if you have an approximate date that that's okay, like it would be nice to know that Benjamin Franklin lived in the 18th century and not the 20th century. I think that's important. Um, but I think it's more on the, on the stories and the people that lived. I think people connect best to history when it's through, through people. Yeah. And you mentioned all the new technologies and I, I think you're right. It is called iBeacon and obviously they use it in things like retail, you know, when, when it's the minority report, when Tom Cruise is walking into the mall and it says, Hey Tom, and they show him something like a relevant ad. And yeah, that's a good point. That's exactly what's going to happen with uh, museums and making them more interactive and more engaging, and, and I think holograms are going to be pretty interesting when they put those into use. I can't even imagine holograms. Wow. <laughs> you could have, like, I mean, you'll have, like, I mean, this, obviously the Star Wars example comes to mind, but you're going to have a face-to-face discussion with Benjamin Franklin if you, can, if you want to. Possibly. There actually is a really fascinating museum that almost does that. It's the Ben Franklin House in London. It's where he stayed while he was in London. And there is no furniture in that house. But they give you like a brief overview of the house and Franklin's history in London before you go on your tour. And then Polly Stevenson, who was the daughter of his landlady, meets you and she she takes you throughout the house and you enter a room and then there's like a projector and it might show you his harmonica, which was the musical instrument Franklin invented, or it might start with a conversation and then they use his letters and primary sources to tell you about his time in London. So you get a really accurate view of 
of what it was like for him to be in London. And yet you're in an empty room. It's, it's just kind of odd, but it'll sound like there's people around. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see when he just pops up from the floor <laughs> and maybe using his records, we'll have the technology. You can ask him a question and he'll pull up some relevant quote from one of the plethora of papers he left behind. Yeah, because the individual pieces already exist. Obviously, you know, things like IBM's Watson has the, the natural language processing capabilities and the actual technology for projecting the hologram and just marrying those two together and the speed at which you can pull data from the Internet, for example. I think it, it's, we're probably not that far away from something like that happening. You know, then we're ha- going to have to get serious about the answer to the question, like, who is the historic figure you've always wanted to meet because it'll be possible to meet them? Yeah. Although I guess you won't have to choose just one, which will help. And, and I mean, the fact that you have folks doing like Civil War reenactments and Boston Tea Party reenactments. So there's no shortage of actors or, and voiceover actors who will lend their talents to this sort of thing. And, and I imagine there's just a whole cottage industry that's going to sprout up. Yeah. Have you ever read Tony Horowitz's uh, Confederates in the Attic about Civil War reenacting? Years ago, it won the Pulitzer Prize, I think. But Tony Horowitz is a journalist and he he loves the Civil War. And he went out to find out why Americans are still obsessed with the Civil War. And he part of his adventure is he starts reenacting. So he goes through like the different levels of reenacting from farbing it to like you're the most fake person out there to like, I'm going to put my pee in a cup and soak my buttons in it so they get the right color and then stitch them on my uniform to get, you know, the right accuracy for whatever uniform they're wearing. That's, so it, uh, that's a, obviously something you can't make up. So I'm assuming it's a crazy that, I, that, I, that, I, that actually happens. Yeah. I mean, it was in the book, so I don't doubt him. And uh, I've had the honor to meet Tony once and I don't think he makes a lot up. Wow. Well, it, I mean, it's those people that go to the Renaissance Fair actors as well. I mean, I imagine it's some of that mentality because when they're in that, I mean, they're really like wholeheartedly like immerse themselves in that world. Yeah, I can see it. Actually, when I was at Penn State, Gods and Generals, which was that pretty poor prequel to that big Gettysburg film, was out. And I went to the theater and like I knew a bunch of people from like the blue band, which is the Penn State marching band and others in it. And they, they were all in the film. That's how they spent their weekends is they were union and, and Confederate reenactors. I'm like, wait, that's Jeb. And, and there's Mike. And it, it was just weird, but that's what they do on the weekends. I like to think about the past. I don't really have a desire to, to reenact it that far. I have fired a musket, but I like conveniences like warm water, yeah. toilet paper, internet. things like that. Yeah, internet. <laughs> so you've never dressed up as a historical figure for Halloween? I wanted to be a pirate as a kid. I dressed up like a pirate. That, that sort of counts. Yeah. So moving on to the podcast, in general, how are things going? I mean, I know, I know you recently published the stats. It's been about six months and closing in on 200,000 downloads. Yeah, it's been really awesome. I'm really fortunate. I don't know whether it's the subject matter or how I launched or the confluence of things, but I've really lucked out. Ben Franklin's world has done well. There's a lot of people who love history, who listen to the show. They, they're willing to spend 45 to 60 minutes with me each week. And then the emails they send are just awesome. Like sometimes it's just their family tree because we talked about, you know, an event or person that they're related to. Sometimes it's just, I live in this really historic area and they want to share it with me. And other times it's just like, I think your show is awesome. And that's very flattering to, to hear. Do you get a range of folks from, is it just people from this country or are there people from other countries that you hear from? 
I have downloads from other countries, which is natural. I take a very expansive view of Ben Franklin's world. So I picked Ben Franklin because his life pretty much spanned the entire 18th century. And because he was an inventor and a diplomat, he was into science. He was into politics with his newspaper. He wrote a lot. He traveled the world. He went to Europe. He went to Canada. So I feel that gives me the freedom to be like, okay, if we're talking about the French Revolution and that aspect of the French Revolution plays into American history. We can talk about it on the show. We can talk about the Caribbean. I have an episode about Canada and the, the way the American Revolution played out there coming up soon. So I take a really expansive view of Ben Franklin and I did pick him for for branding. So it, the podcast is not about Ben Franklin, which I try to explain to every academic, but luckily they are not the demographic for the show. None of the people who listen to it seem to have a problem with the fact that it's not all about Ben Franklin. Yeah. Like you said, you're using Ben Franklin as a way to set the context for the topics that you're covering on the show. Yeah. And uh, when, when you, you do get feedback from folks who listen to the show, do you, you ask them how, how they found out about it? No, that would be an awesome question. Thanks, Harry. <laughs> No, I mean, I, we talk history. We send emails back and forth. They even contact me now. I have uh, one listener who every time he's in a different city, he travels a lot for business and he emails or tweets me and he says, hey, I have three hours. What should I go see? So if I can help him out, I, you know, I try to help him out. I have other people that we talk books. So we talk about a range of subjects, but I really should start asking them, like, how did you hear about us? And I, I noticed on the site, you have the Poor Richards Club as well, your, your private Facebook community. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I really wanted to call it the Junto, which was the club of betterment that Ben Franklin and his fellow Philadelphia artisans founded. But that's taken by my friends, a few other early Americanists. And they have a blog called the Junto, which is a, is a great blog in early American history. And then they have the Junto cast, which is a monthly podcast of early American history. And they, they have like roundtable discussions. So I'm like, okay, well, they've taken the most natural name, like they don't have a Facebook group. I could take it, but then it would just feel wrong. Yeah. So I went with Poor Richard's Club. People knew Poor Richard's Almanac, and I thought maybe we'd have some wit and wisdom just like in the Almanac in the, in the community. And that's been a lot of fun, too. There are about 120 uh, history lovers in that community. We share articles. We talk about them. You know, we talk about when we visit a fascinating historic site. And I'm not the only one starting conversations, which is great. So we're small, but we're growing, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and it probably gives you an opportunity to dig deeper in some of the topics that you cover in your interviews with your guests, right? Sure. And I invite my guests to join in the club. So like Shelby Balick's interview about the New England migration into northern New England and the establishment of religion there, I had two listener questions and the interview was just so rich. We never, we spent an hour and we didn't get to them. So I asked her if she would answer them in that community and she did. Nice. Um, so we talk about that and it's also a great qu place to pose questions. So every week, if I can, I try and post, Hey, you know, I'm having so-and-so on the show. We're discussing this. What questions do you have? And so for like the John Quincy Adams interview, I almost didn't have to come up with questions because there were just so many questions people wanted to know. I do try to, to shape a narrative arc when I ask the questions to try and give people a bit of context and chronological order when we ask 
things. So everybody's on the same page. Everybody should be able to understand our history. But I do try to get to as many listener questions as possible because ultimately it's it's our show. So I want to honor them with that. You mentioned John Quincy Adams. What's your take or do, and do you have a favorite when it comes to the history documentaries for some of these figures? And John Quincy Adams came to mind because I know Paul Giamatti had, oh. that, had, that, recent ep- had that recent series on HBO, I think it was. Yeah, he, w- he actually played John Quincy's father, John Adams, okay. who's the second president. John Quincy was the sixth president. Um, and he was actually a better diplomat and congressman than he was president. But he, John Quincy Adams is fascinating because his life as a child, he witnessed the American Revolution and then his father took him to France. So he met Benjamin Franklin. He thought Thomas Jefferson was an uncle until they had a falling out during the political escapades of of his father and, and Thomas Jefferson. He met so many important figures. He was also the first minister to Russia. He had this really close relationship to Emperor Alexander I. So he's a fascinating individual. I used to think John Adams was my favorite president. I love John Adams's candor because I, I don't tend to beat around the bush when I want to ask something or have an opinion about something, and neither did Adams. So his, his journal entries and letters are, are very frank, and I, I appreciate that. But after thinking upon it seriously, I have to say that George Washington was my favorite president because if it weren't for Washington, there, I don't know if there would be a presidency. The country may have fallen apart. And he did a lot of work to establish precedents like Mr. President and to give the power that the office has today. So, Yeah, it's always interesting. And there's, there's no shortage of documentaries that continue to come out. And, you know, you would think that there's been enough said about all these historical figures, but I think there'll never be a shortage of showing like a different take or unearthing some some nugget or aspect of these these historical figures personality so is there anything that's coming up or or that you've seen or watched recently from a, a documentary perspective that you've liked i haven't seen any documentaries lately because i read so much for the podcast i read every book thoroughly before we do an interview i only see about an hour of tv a night in fact the only thing i watch live is game of thrones but the great thing about history is is no matter how much we we try to be objective. The present always colors the way we view the past. So I am fascinated by regionalism and the development of regional identities. And that makes sense because I was born in 1981. And throughout my lifetime, I have witnessed us going from a Congress and government that was kind of consensus driven to now we're on the far extremes. So regional identity plays a role in that. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that. But other people, you know, during the 1940s, they were interested in the Depression. And, you know, what, what about economic panics happened? How did the country forge forward during tough economic times or during times of war? So our, the present always colors our view of the past, even if we try to portray the past objectively as possible. Now, Harry, who's your favorite historical personage? Hmm. Well, I, I think um, I probably don't know enough about uh, historical figures to have an opinion. I think I, I'm drawn more towards the inventors. 
So I, I, I watched, of all things, it was a, I recently saw something on Harry Houdini because I used to grow up and I used to <laughs> dabble in like magic. So I was fascinated by Harry Houdini when I was growing up. But then I saw, oh, I saw the, um, the Men Who Built America. Have you seen that? I don't know if you've seen that on Netflix. I have seen that. Yeah, that's the Carnegie's, the, the J.P. Morgan's, the Vanderbilt's. It's a fascin- the fascinating. Robber Barons. Robber Barons. You know what's funny about that documentary is it's almost like a necessary evil as much as I hate to say it because they almost needed that sort of presumption that I could do whatever I need to do and, and I'll just step on as you know many people as I can just because that sort of will is almost what the country needed at that point to lift itself up. You, know, you, you could argue that back and forth. But the things that they did in such a short period of time, in the establishment of the railroads, you know, the invention of electricity, and, and just all these modern conveniences that we take for granted, I don't know. I don't know. You could, Like I said, you could argue it, and whether the fact that it was a monopoly at the time or not benefited the country, and it's something we needed at that period of time, and obviously we've grown out of that and we're more advanced now, and obviously a lot of that stuff wouldn't fly, but it, it was very interesting to watch just for that period of time. And, and one of the things that we're talking about was Edison's role in his partnership with uh, J.P. Morgan and how they created uh, General Electric. But what I found more interesting, I've always been more drawn to uh, Tesla, Nikola Tesla. And so I think a lot of the things that Tesla was doing was were, it was so, so advanced. And I mean, it, he even dabbled in like free energy and just his the tesla coils and it it was so ahead of its time that it just scared the crap out of like edison and you know that's why they undermined him and and eventually i think that's why tesla died broke but i I would have to say probably from an innovation standpoint nikola tesla is someone that i'm just continuously fascinated by that's great so yeah i probably should dig in a bit more and and do a little bit more reading and, and see what else is out there in terms of his life because i'm sure there's stuff that, you know, I've only scratched the surface and from the, the stuff that I've known or, or read. So that's probably a homework assignment for me now. <laughs> it sounds like a fun one, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as far as the, the podcast, you recently put out an article called how do, how do We Monetize Digital History Projects? And I imagine that was something that's been um, bubbling up in terms of your thought process and, and seeing what other podcasters are doing. And, and you know, obviously we're in, in some of the local the online Facebook groups and, and, and chat rooms. And, and so, you know, these topics always come up. And a lot of the times, all the other podcasters, obviously, in the entrepreneurial space, a good, a good portion of them are. So what prompted that article? And what's been the feedback so far from the time since you've posted it? I haven't had a lot of feedback yet, but I was hoping to start a conversation because I have a podcast and that's not the only digital type of history project. I have friends with digital magazines digital exhibits. There are all sorts of projects out there. And a bunch of us do it without institutional support. As a society, we have this idea that universities and the government support history and history should be offered for free. And I agree with a lot of that. But the problem is, is we don't have a lot of funding. And and part of that's historians own fault. Like, we stopped talking to the public. We used to be very, history used to be very top of mind for Americans, and it's not anymore. Instead, science has moved in and STEM's gone up and they have all the funding in the world that they can do some great projects with. But learning history is, is just as important. So with the podcast, I hope to try and change that and push other historians to engage with the public more as well. But I don't have institutional support, so there's no one funding my podcast. And granted, this is some of my own creation. I wanted to produce 
the highest quality podcast I could. As I listened to podcasts and I did my 18 months worth of research on how to create one, I came to the conclusion that if you really wanted to succeed, you need to, in this day and age, have a high quality podcast that people want to listen to a podcast that sounds like it could be on radio. And so I hired an audio engineer and Toby Lyles is absolutely great. And he helps me out a lot. And sometimes he discounts his rates for me because he loves history too. But between his fees and hosting and you know, I used Edgar to help promote the shows. It cost me about $90 an episode. And my partner, Tim, he he's like the patron saint of Ben Franklin's world. He funds every episode and he's happy to do it. So Ben Franklin's world is not going away, but I feel guilty. Um, this has become a very expensive hobby. I'm dumping in 30, 30 plus hours a week by the time I read the book and prep for the interview. And so I'd like to get paid for my time eventually. But it's this bigger question of how do we support these valuable projects that are making a difference and keep them going? You know, what do we do if universities and the government aren't paying for them? And so it was really a thought piece of here are six ideas I'm thinking about, but I don't have any solutions yet. I was hoping somebody might come up with a better idea or better yet say, you know, I love history. I want to be your patron. Maybe that'll happen. I don't know. Maybe there's an angel out there. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about it on this show before. I'm a firm believer of putting out into the universe that with uh, which you want back in, in return. And I think you just have to put the intention out. It's so funny. I just saw a, a Jim Carrey. Have you ever seen that Jim Carrey commencement speech? It sort of makes the rounds every couple of months. It's very... Oh, very, with the check, right? Yeah. Yeah. He talks about the check and he, and he just talks about, you know, you, you can't predict or anticipate what form the response will be. So you just have to say, this is what I want and this is what I need. And it'll just come from the strangest place that you would just been like, what? I, I, I like, it'll just leave you like scratching your head. Like I, I wouldn't have never have seen that coming. I have no idea how I could just got connected to this thing or to this person. But I think as long as like we continue, like just the fact that you're mentioning it here, that you put out the blog post episode, I, I think just do more of that. Just say, this is what I need to happen. I need this to change. And just magical things happen sometimes. Yeah. I, what, what was it? Didn't he write himself like a check for $100,000 or $10 million? And that's what he made for Dumb and Dumber? Something like that. Yeah, like a million dollars or something like that. And, and I think it was him or, and Will Smith did something similar. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you the link and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes as well. I, I literally just saw it today and that's why I was, I was reminded. And it's hugely, hugely inspirational. And, just, and it's another reminder of doing the things that make that you're passionate about right and he had his, he talks about some discussion he had with his father and he said you know just life's too short for you not to be doing the things that you love right yep and i think that's the number one rule of podcasting right find your passion yeah like if you if you're passionate then you have something to say and it'll carry through in your episodes and it'll help make your show a success so how much prep do you do for each one of your guests it varies if i'm doing a historic site i look on their website and I'm devising questions about their site as well as the history it interprets. And I try to do it in such a way, I don't want to dumb history down, but I try to give people context so anybody can, can listen to the episode and understand what's going on. And then I'll build from these more simple questions, to these more complex issues so we can dive down deep. And I do read every book. If you've ever read a history book, I'm sure you know that most of them are not written well. Again, it's a fault of the profession. And I'm lucky I had an advisor who took the time to teach us how to write. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes. So 
it's fantastic training, but I read every book as bad or as great as they are. And I, I write down all sorts of questions. And then at the end, I sit down with my questions and I figure out which ones make the most sense to ask. And then if I have any submissions, I throw in the listener questions that make sense to ask and we just roll with it. And do you find that you've gotten better with in terms of the flow? Like you said, with episode number four, you probably, I think you were alluding to the fact that you're a little uncomfortable <laughs> with that interview. And I imagine now, 30 plus episodes in, you're, you're getting more and more comfortable with these interviews. Yeah, I'm much more confident now. Tom wrote a great book. Sex and the Founding Fathers was a very interesting book. And it talks about how we try to understand the Founding Fathers by learning about their sex lives. And he believes that sex makes the founding fathers more relatable. And he, he writes a very convincing argument. It's a very readable book. And it was so good. And I just wanted to do it justice. And I stuttered and uh, I was nervous. And Tom was was very gracious. And someday he'll have another book out. And I, I promise to do it better. But like all podcasters, I've just gotten better with each one. And yeah. now I can be a bit more free flowing and ask questions as they come up. But one of the interesting feedbacks I have is if you listen to an interview show, I mean, it hasn't been so much in this show, but a lot of interviewers like interject and interrupt their interviewee, their guest. And I didn't because I was waiting for them to finish. And then I started getting feedback. You know, it was just like a nervous thing. I just wanted them to finish. And then the feedback, I love how you let them speak. So now I will let like a bit of silence go between my question and their answer before I ask the next one and try not to interrupt. Like even with a yeah, you know, I may be sitting there shaking my head and an acknowledgement and agreement. And I just let them talk because people love it. I still get that feedback. So I aim to please. So if that's what the listeners want, that's what they get. That was my dramatic pause. And it was was well (laughs) done. Well done. No, it's interesting because that's how real conversations are, right? You just, there's this natural flow and, you know, people do it when they edit their shows too. They, they take out all the ums and the ahs and, and you can hear it because it sounds like they're not even stopping to breathe. I do take out some, most of it is subconscious, like misspeak. The more and more I listen to myself, the more I'm like, I use so a lot to begin like every question. So I've edited some of those out because now I just find it annoying and I have eliminated some of it. But then it's like now I don't tend to um too much, but every once in a while, but I'll leave those in. That just sounds human. But it is interesting. The more and more you podcast and the more you hear yourself speak, I would hope that it compels us all to be better public speakers in a way. I think it does because I've had that same phenomenon myself when I've edited my, my earlier shows and I listen to my shows now. And I think part of it comes down to wanting to fill the empty space and trying to express to the listener that you're you're still here because people might tend to freak out like, did, is the podcast still on or are these guys still talking or did it end or did something happen? And so the thing that I've done to combat that is just slow down. And if I don't know what I'm going to say next, then I'm having the conversation with my guests. So I, I don't think, you know, and that's one of the reasons I do it with a video Skype because like we can see each other and we can sort of see the body language and and I can see when you're animated and you're and you're on a topic and you're really on a roll and it's like okay I'm gonna let Liz finish and you can sort of tell by body language when someone is done with their thoughts and then you can interject at that point and that's why I, I like the the video aspect but I think like you said it just comes with practice and being comfortable in our own skin. Yeah, it's also a cultural issue. So 
academics hate Skype because they conduct a bunch of job interviews on Skype and, and they always watch these horrible job interviews. So they don't want to be on Skype. So I actually use uh, Google Voice and Audio Hijack Pro to record my interviews. Okay. So it took me a while to get the hang of not having body language. And now I've sort of gotten the hang of it. It's, it's really, it's tough to do an interview without it. But it's also cultural. I've interviewed a few Brits and where we will fill, as Americans, we will fill the empty space with ah or um, they just stop talking. <laughs> and then I moved on to another question. Like I waited, you know, maybe like a second or two and I asked the next question and somebody else answered it. And then he, he came back and he's like, I wasn't done. So I've had to edit that back in and I felt bad, but it's, it's a cultural thing. Like That's in America, funny. we want to fill the space, but in Great Britain, apparently there's a lot of Brits who they just stop talking and let their th thoughts come to them and then resume. Which is awkward for a podcast interview. <laughs> Especially one without video. <laughs> but that's the beauty of editing, right? Yeah, you can make like all your guests sound so fantastic uh, with, the, with the right editing. Yeah. One thing I do want to talk about was the fact, and you brought it up so I feel free to mention it, you're a Game of Thrones fan. Yeah. And you know what? With each episode, Daenerys is looking better and better to me. I hope she's going to win. I like Tyrion a lot, but I think he's just he's meant to be like the hand of the king. Yeah. But I've been obsessed with dragons. Like I want Daenerys to free the dragons, like take off those chains and the shackles. And I was just I was tickled pink last week when we saw the dragon finally come out and save Daenerys. I just I hope in this season finale she finally frees the other two. Do you watch the the after on on HBO they do the, the, the sort of like the director's 5 minute take of like the episode? I, 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 we watch it on HBO Go so it immediately plays afterwards. I don't know if you watch those as well but you know obviously once once you're into a show that much you just consume everything you can. So that always provides like a little bit more insight into the mind of like the director and 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 the writer obviously. I don't know if you've you've watched those. I haven't. We have HBO on our on our satellite. And like I said, everything we watch from the DVR, but that show we watch live. And then after it airs, it's like 10 or 11 o'clock at night and we have to take the dogs out for a walk. Yeah. So what they were saying is when one of the one of the writers or directors were saying when he read that episode, he knew it was going to be one of the most exciting moments in the, the history of the show, not even just this season, because it was so dramatic in the way that it was played out. And he was just thinking in his mind, like, how the heck are we going to pull this off? Because the way they built it and the fact that you could, you know, they had that aerial shot of the stadium, I guess I should say spoiler alert, right? <laughs> I just Definitely. realized. I just realized people that that uh, do movie podcasts are like spoiler alert. Don't listen. <laughs> so yeah, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Game of Thrones, you can stop now and watch. You know, and and get back to this interview after, or fast forward about a couple of minutes. But they did the aerial shot. And he he was basically saying this is a movie quality type shot you know tv show and obviously hbo's got a great budget but he was saying like the production value for like what they were shooting is something you would see in like a james cameron movie or something like that they've done a lot of those shots because the episode before with the white walkers storming the the wildlings home that that was amazing too i didn't think it could get much better and then there then there were dragons and let i mean harry we're coming upon the season finale this week like where do we go from here like how can it get better but it 
it has to, right? Well, it's funny is that my wife and I held off on watching for the longest time. We actually just started this year. So we binge watched uh, a couple of months ago, we started one. And then the first couple are hard as with any new series, because you're just like, it's so like hard to get into new characters that you have no connection to. And so we, we actually had to watch, start watching it three or four times. And then finally, everyone's talking about it. We're like, okay, this is it. We're just going to bear down and get through those first four or five episodes. And then after the first season, you sort of get into the flow and you're like, you can start to find out who your favorites are, which is a dangerous thing to do in Game of Thrones because you quickly realize there are no favorites, you know, from a writer's perspective and heads start getting chopped off and it's just crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, I have a confession. I actually started with Game of Thrones. I started to read the book, but I didn't oh. finish it by the time the first season aired. And then it was so close to the book. I just stopped reading. But my partner, Tim, read them all. And I was going to start with like book two or pick up with book one. I, I don't remember, but I was going to pick up the books again. He finished all five. And then he was like, oh, I have to wait for book six. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to wait till George R. R. Martin finishes writing them all before I go back to find out how much better the book is to the TV show. So, yeah, they've already mentioned that they've you know, diverted from parts of the book anyway. I think they do that on purpose. And they did that. They do that with The Walking Dead as well, because I think they don't want to be a literal interpretation of the events in, in the comic or in the book in this case. Yeah. And it makes it more exciting. You can enjoy both types of media that way. What I, what I did want to uh, ask and to tie it into the podcast and, and you being a historian, do you ever watch that show with an eye towards history? And, you know, in terms of like how, and I know it talks about a fictional world, but a lot of the topics that are covered, you know, are very political in nature. And there's a lot of dynamics that you could easily translate to current world, you know, politics. And I'm wondering if you've ever, you ever watched a show and it's hard for you to take off your historian hat that one is not too bad because a lot of it seems medieval to me i mean the messages are current but medieval and that's not my area of expertise so i can watch that one and have no problem tv shows like turn or i couldn't even finish that sons of liberty miniseries i know it was fictional but that was just so inaccurate that drove me nuts so if it's in my period i'm like the worst person to watch it because they just sit there and i you know, if I'm at home, I just pull it apart. So Tim is like, this is totally non-enjoyable. But if it's removed from my area of study, and I, I study really 1750 to the early 1800s, I'm, I love the American Revolutionary period. As long as we're outside of that, that's okay. But with that said, I mean, I enjoyed John Adams. Like, I was like, Joseph Warren died at Bunker Hill. They buried him there. He, there was no way he was in that cart. But aside from that, you know, it was okay. You remind me of Neil deGrasse Tyson when he's he's commenting like on gravity or interstellar <laughs> and he's like, no, there's like there's no way that debris could have happened in gravity because of like the the I don't know, some some aspect of like the way it works in space and, and the way it travels in the orbits and all that sort of stuff. And he, he gets a little bit harassed with that sort of stuff. But I mean, that's that's his job and that's what he studies day in and day out. And I'm assuming it's the same way with you. Yeah, he's a he's inspirational because he's a science communicator and I consider myself a history communicator. So we know the field and we're trying to help everybody who, who is interested just understand it. But I think everybody can relate to this problem, right? Like my partner, Tim, works for Google. He's a computer engineer. He, he writes code and he'll watch hacking sequences from movies or he works for Google, right? And he watched that internship movie and he's just like, he's ripping it apart, you know, and he's like, that code's bogus, you know, like they couldn't do that. So I think everybody when it's it's something related to something they're passionate about and they know a lot about it's it's tough to watch when hollywood dramatizes it does he watch silicon valley 
we do watch it. We watch the first season, but we haven't the second season sitting on the DVR. So I think as soon as Game of Thrones ends, we might start getting back into that. I heard that's pretty. I mean, I've seen it as well. And from what I've heard, it's uh, fairly accurate. There are some parallels with the, the startup world and Silicon Valley that I notice. Tim will refute this, but I notice some of the social patterns like computer geeks. The stereotype kind of is accurate, more or less. You know, yeah. they tend to be a little socially awkward and quiet. Genius, like fascinating to talk to, but like, really, you don't know how to say hello or <laughs> look up from your computer. Or what do you do? What, what do you do when a woman walks in the room? Yeah, exactly. So there was a, there was one comment about how they always travel in in packs, and there's and it was funny. Because I forgot. I don't remember the exact dynamic. He's like, there's always like one heavyset guy, one Asian guy, one Indian guy, <laughs> and one like white guy with like really long hair. And then they they cut to a scene where the guy's looking out the window at the campus, and he's like, you see the groups, and they identify like three or four different groups, and each one has the exact same dynamic. And from what I heard from the writer. Um, Mike Judge, I think, was talking about like that stuff like that really happens. And it's so funny that you can't even make that stuff up. It kind of sounds like high school, too. Like yeah. in all the clips. Yeah. I was looking back to the, the podcast. I was looking on your site and you have that section where you have guests. And you've, yes. and you've listed out all the guests that you spoke to, which I thought was an impressive enough list. But what was more impressive to me was your future guests. Are yeah, those people so that, are, that you are, are coming up on the show? Yeah. So I committed to one episode a week and I don't want to let my listeners down. So because a lot of the episodes revolve around books, I need to give the publishers lead time to do it. Um, but I am booked out through interviews almost through October. I think there's one interview time left in October, but I already have all the content I need for 2015. So when I start booking again, end of October, early November, I'll actually be recording for 2015. And now that historians and publishers have sort of found out about me, I'm getting a little bit more interest, more historians pitching themselves, which is great because historians are horrible marketers. Uh, they don't know how to market history, but the publishers are, man, that's tough because they send me a catalog and then it's like, you can have any book in that catalog. So it's like being a kid in a candy store where it's like, you can have it and it's free. Wow. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I recently uh, doubled down on, on my, um, my frequency. I, I think I was of the opinion early on, that's my show and, and I can do it whatever I want and I could have guests whenever I want and I could release whenever I want. And I've just been reminded more and more by some of the podcasts that I listen to and people that I respect that consistency is really big for your fans and to have some sense of when the episodes are going to come out is really important for them. And I'm assuming that's something that you found to be true. Yeah. During my 18 months of research, I found out that once a week was the best way to, to build a stable audience. So that's what I, what I produce at. Next year, I've been using Trello and I've been creating an editorial tool. So the show really started with, hey, I really want to read that book. And I invite the historian on the show or they were a friend um, and their work is fascinating. So I wanted to help them highlight that. But next year, I want to be more well-rounded. So I'm trying to get some more Western history, some more Southeastern history, more diverse topics. So it won't just be the Northeastern show. There's like a block of episodes where it's like I never leave New England or New York. But we will be leaving it. I have episodes in the Southeast coming up. But next year, I want to do a better job of that. So that tool has been helpful for that. Yeah, I've played with both. I've, I've, uh, Trello and I, I use Asana as well. So I think I'm, I'm still, I, I, most of my stuff is in Asana. But I think for forward-looking projections, I, I really like the visual aspect of Trello. Yeah, and that's why I like it for that. As we get into the home stretch, 
What, and you may have touched upon this earlier, but what are your biggest challenges as you look to grow the show? I would love to, uh, I mean, right now it's financing. Like if I had financing, I don't even know if I'd pay for the episodes now. I'd probably pay for some help because uh, I'd like to do, I'd like to do more of them. There is a demand for more chronological series. People kind of looking to brush up on their history more than they, you know, at a more basic level than they can get in the show. I mean, anybody can understand the episodes, but they would like a series on the American Revolution and we would chart it from the 1750s to, you know, its end point somewhere in the, the 1790s, if you want to go as far as the founding of the Constitution. So there, there's a need for that, you know, and you could say the same about the Civil War, Colonial America, or Maybe I will do series, you know, build those in, in the show. Everybody's fascinated by everyday life. What was it like for average men and women to live? So I'd like to do more episodes like that. But I'm just still trying to get word out about the show. The show is still young. And as well as it's doing, I still think there's a ton of people who don't know about us. I still get emails every day with, you know, not every day. I wish it was every day. Of people saying, you know, I just found your show and I love it. So I'd like more people to be able to find us. So I think, you know, with like a lot of podcasters, it just it's word of mouth and getting the word out. Very cool. So um, what is, when you think about podcasting in general, what are, what are the, the things that have gotten you excited about the way the technology is developing as you think about the next six to 12 months? I'm pretty excited that there are more avenues opening up to us like Spotify. I'm excited the way that it's going to be integrated into cars. Yeah. That to me is very, very exciting. I'm excited about how I'm actually excited about how much NPR and NPR trained people are moving into this space because they push us all to be better. And they're producing such high quality shows like Serial and uh, Startup and Reply All and all that, all of those type of shows that they're attracting more people to the medium. So I think all of that is all of that's great. So I think that's probably what's exciting me the most. Yeah, that whole NPR factor. It's funny. There's two schools of thought because I've heard someone say, well, NPR and those types of podcasts are not doing anything innovative because I think someone asked, what's, what's innovative in podcasting right now? And someone answered, oh, you're serial and startup. And they said, well, what they're actually doing is just taking the NPR style of delivery and just bring it to podcasting. So it's like there's nothing exciting about that because we could have, we're listening to the same type of show, the same type of delivery. Obviously, you know, for us, what's interesting is the, the level of professionalism and the level of production that they're putting into these shows. I mean, they're, they're, each one is like a mini TV episode. It's just crazy how they suck you in. <laughs> I mean, I recently, recently, just because of 99% Invisible, I just was tuned on to like three or four other shows. And I just, I think in the past two or three days, just added like five or six shows that I absolutely don't have time to listen to, to my iPhone. And I'm, I got to figure out a way to listen to that. But I think something that I want to do is really just use those folks as an inspiration and maybe even start to reach out to those podcasters and start to have them on, on this show, which would be pretty exciting. As a new avid podcast junkies listener, I would love to hear from Roman Mars. Always look up, Harry. Yeah, exactly. I do have my dream, my dream guest list and, you know, folks like Tim Ferriss and, and uh, Roman Mars and uh, Dan Benjamin, I think, are on that list. Uh, people that I've long admired in the space. But yeah, there's no reason that I, I can't start with some of the, the folks who are just new in the space and who have probably worked on some of these shows like This American Life. And that might be my intro to the, the higher ups. Yeah. You know, I have a philosophy on that. I, I always shoot for the stars because I figure the worst they can say is no. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a little disheartening, but I mean, really, that's the worst thing that can happen. They could say no. Yeah, I, I follow some interesting podcasters in comedy, uh, Duncan Trussell, and then uh, he's friends with Joe Rogan, who ultimately I probably would l- love to have on the show as well. And then they've friended an author of, the, of a book called Sex at Dawn, Chris Ryan, who's got a fantastic podcast called Tangentially Speaking. And I reached out to him I, after like working up the courage and listening to his episodes. I think he was giving one of his listeners some grief because he took so long to send in an email. He's like, dude, just do it, you know, whatever. And I sort of took those words to heart. I sent him an email. He's actually finishing up a book now, but he said, reach back to me. He responded within like 20 minutes and he said, reach back to me in a couple of months. I'm working on the book right now. So I'm like, that's like a a warm yes. (laughs) Anybody who has a book to sell, like has a book out, they're pretty easy. But then it's also annoying because there's several podcasts I've listened to and it's like the same guest. And I listen to like two or three interviews. I'm like, all right, now we're just doing variations on the same questions. Yeah, I found it easy to get historians who have a book out to talk, but it makes it problematic when people are like, I want to know more about the regulator movement in North Carolina. It's like the last book was like 15 years ago and they've said no because they've moved on. Historians moved on. Well, that's interesting because you mentioned that and I was going to talk about it earlier, but you're working on a book yourself. I am. I'm turning my dissertation into a book. I'm not objective about it at all because I've been staring at it for like 10 years. But my goal is to get it done by the end of the year. And it's called America's First Gateway. And it looks at how the people of Albany, New York, created first Dutch, then British and and American identities. And it's it's looking at cultural wars with the New Englanders and the the Britons. And before there was St. Louis, Albany really was the gateway to North America. You could go to Canada, New York City. You go to the Great Lakes using the rivers and portages before they built the Erie Canal. So it's a very fascinating place. I know people are like, Albany, like, isn't that in New York? But it's a truly fascinating place. And it, and it has a very different heritage than most would assume because it started out as a Dutch, a Dutch settlement. And it's actually older than Boston. It was settled in starting around 1614. So Boston, 1630. So. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, I grew up in I grew up in New York, so I'm, I'm it's somewhat, older than New York yeah. City, Harry. <laughs> so I'm actually familiar with Albany, and I went to school in Syracuse, so somewhat familiar with the area as well. So, yeah. yeah, that should be interesting, and best of luck. And that means you'll be asked on all these other podcasts when your book is released. There aren't a lot of other history podcasts that'll have me on their show, but I will likely say yes to any that do, or maybe maybe there'll be more by then. Yeah, I think there will be. So last, completely off-topic question: What would you say is the one most uh, misunderstood thing about you? I don't really know. I guess I don't know myself that well. I mean, I can tell you this. So I have a PhD in history, which means I get to I get to use that title doctor. And I'll, I never use it because it, it does sound a bit pretentious. But I'll go to a conference to deliver like an academic paper. And they're like, and Dr. Kovart. And there's always like that second where I'm like, what? Who are they talking about? Because they never use it. It's just it's actually a joke in my household. So I, but I don't really know what the most misunderstood thing about me is. We can, we'll let the listener interpret from that comment yeah. what, what they think they should be. <laughs> so uh, where can folks track you down for more info on you and your happenings? BenFranklinsWorld.com is a great place to start. And I love Twitter. Next to being a podcast junkie, I'm a Twitter junkie. So at Liz Kovart is okay. where they can tweet me. And thanks for listening to the unusually long podcast, my last podcast episode. And I throw my Easter eggs in there to see who actually <laughs> listened. <laughs> And use the hashtag in a in a tweet, which was uh, fun. So I always geek out when uh, folks listen to the the episode in its entirety. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I can't wait to hear what the hashtag is for this show. I think uh, it's going to be the hashtag Doctor Covart. <laughs> good one, good one. Then I'll be really confused. 
So hashtag Dr. Kovart, if you made it this far and you enjoyed our conversation. So wishing you the best of luck. I think uh, maybe we'll have some follow-up chats on what we can do to get more of an audience to your show. I mean, you're, you're doing well. Those numbers are fantastic. But I think if any listeners have any idea, I'm sure you, you can reach out to Liz as well for ways in which you can spread the word. But I'm wishing you the best of luck. Thank you very much. And I wish you luck. Thanks. Have a fantastic day, Liz. Thank you. So thanks again for coming on the show, Liz. And I hope you had a good time. I think you're wondering how the show is going to go since most of the episodes or interviews you've had are structured. So I hope you had a good time. I had a fun time talking to you. I think the listeners had an enjoyable and informative experience as well. So if you want more details on everything we talked about, head on over to podcastjunkies.com slash 43. Full show notes. You can subscribe at podcastjunkies.com slash iTunes. It's probably the easiest way, but we're also available on Stitcher for those of you that have Android. And if you want to leave a review, you can leave a review on said Stitcher and on said iTunes. Just head on over to the same link, podcastjunkies.com slash iTunes. Hit subscribe, five stars, and tell us why you think this show is so freaking awesome. It's not that hard. Thanks again for constantly coming in. I'm really happy to get these shows out to you on a more consistent basis. And I'm excited about my plans for getting a wider variety of guests on the show. I still don't know who that is going to be in the short term, but I'm pretty excited about some names I have in mind. And again, I'm just looking to expand it out beyond the entrepreneurial space and get some of the more prominent names in the storytelling genre and in the uh, audio drama and just folks that I've been listening to recently that are inspiring me. I'm going to start to ensure that I give credit where credit is due for anything that's happened on the show or, or for folks that are helping me or for people that have been with me um, from the beginning. One of those folks that I want to call out is uh, Cedar and Soil. He's the musician responsible for the show's intro music and outro music. I think I'm going to hit him up for some original music for me to play out towards the end. It's something I've been in, inspired to do and he's the first person that I think about because he's been with me and supporting the show since the beginning. He actually was curating some of the songs we were playing at the end of the episodes towards the the beginning of the actual podcast until I discontinued that. It was just a, more of a headache from a copyright perspective and I ran into some challenges when and um, porting the episodes over to YouTube. So I had to, to stop that for now. So we're going to pick that back up again. Sorry, not the, not the songs, but I think some, some music uh, at the end of the episode would be really nice and some original music to boot. So stay tuned for that. And I'm excited about where that might end up. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, just send a text message. It's the easiest way, 33444. And send the word podcast junkies to that number, Podcast Junkies, all one word, to 33444, and then you'll immediately be uh, given instructions on how to sign up. I've been focusing on that method of sign up recently because I think uh, what I've seen is that a lot of listeners are, are coming to the show via mobile because I think it's just the more, most convenient way to consume podcasts, and at least it is for me. 
if that's not the case and you want, want to sign up from your desktop or your browser, you can always do that. Just head on over to podcastjunkies.com and you'll see the link at the top of the page that pops up. You can drop your, your email in there. Another push for the ebook that's out, it's on Amazon now. If you head on over to the website, you'll see that as the top link in the, in the top right sidebar. It's on Amazon. It's called Around the Podcast Campfire. And it's just a, a nice recap of the first 25 discussions I've had with some fantastic guests on the show. And I definitely see that as a continuing series when I get the next round of interviews lined up. So the other thing I've, been, I've dabbled with is maybe even taking that ebook that was a result of the conversations I had and then taking the recap that's in Around the Podcast Campfire and making it an audio book as well. So fun things happening and just experimenting all around and see what works and what doesn't. And I count on your feedback to keep me honest and uh, to keep me on my toes. So as you heard with the end of the episode with Liz, hashtag Dr. Covart. <laughs> I'm sure she'll enjoy it. I know I will just uh, want to see who our true podcast junkies are. So send that tweet out to uh, our Twitter account, podcast underscore junkies with that hashtag. Let me know that you made it this far. So that's it. Have a fantastic week and uh, looking forward to chatting with you guys again next week. Bye. Bye.